If you have a copy of God's Word, please take it and turn to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. As we look at what is, for many of us, probably a familiar passage of Scripture, it is the Great Commission. I believe that any church that claims to be a New Testament church and claims the Great Commission as our mission should regularly have the Great Commission proclaimed. I believe at least once a year we should take the time to really think carefully and biblically and prayerfully about what we're trying to do and what we're trying to be as a church. I believe in this passage what we have in a really clear sense is success defined for us as a church. We have a lot of different ideas of success in our churches. Some churches you may have attended or may have been a part of would see baptisms as the ultimate measure of success, that people entering the waters of baptism and declaring their faith, that's success for a church. Others of us may have been around ideas or definitions that look to attendance or giving, uh, more of a kind of a business-minded model that really sees the giving and the uh, metrics of the church, the old nickels and noses as the primary measure of success. Still others, and maybe more the southern part of the country in a kind of a Bible-based culture would see a proliferation of ministries and mission trips. You know, the number of mission trips and ministries you have, that's really what defines success. If you have thousands and thousands of ministries and mission trips, that's a healthy church. And while I'm very thankful for ministries and mission trips, while I think attendance and giving are things that we should watch, and while I think baptisms are critical to the health and the life of a church, none of those, none of those things I just listed actually define success for the church the way Jesus defines success. See, in Matthew 28, verse 19, Look at it with me there in your Bibles. Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. The focus and the controlling idea for this entire passage is make disciples. Now it's important to kind of pause and reflect on the fact that I don't think the disciples would have been confused about what Jesus means by this. Jesus didn't say to the 12 disciples and the others that were there with him, that with them, uh, make disciples. They did not look at Jesus with confusion. I believe the disciples knew exactly, exactly what Jesus was calling them to do. Now, part of the reason it's difficult for us to comprehend that is because we're not listening with first century ears. You see, back in this culture, there were no colleges and universities. And if you were going to go to a place of higher learning to advance in your understanding of truth and knowledge, you had to go and find a rabbi. You had to go and find a teacher. And what was most desirable for you in that kind of culture was that you would sit underneath that teacher for a period of time, for some years, to the point that you kind of mastered what this teacher was teaching you. Mastered the information, mastered the the way of living, mastered the kind of approach to life that that teacher was giving you. And then after that time, the goal was for you to go out and continue to pass on what you had learned to others. 
You see, the most successful students in this kind of model would have gone themselves out into the world and started their own kind of rabbi training schools where they would have then accumulated disciples. And one of the signs of a very vibrant, very active, very healthy kind of rabbi school and teaching kind of program was the proliferation, the replication and multiplication of what had been taught, fanning out everywhere. That was what... Jesus was saying to his disciples, listen, what I've been doing with you for these last three plus years, what I've taught you, what I've showed you through my life, what I've exhibited and how I've engaged with you, take that, take that and replicate that, pass that on to other people in such a way that they continue to pass that on. What Jesus is saying without any confusion any lack of clarity, is success for a church. Success for a New Testament church is making disciples, producing disciples who they themselves can make disciples. Success for us as a church, therefore, is producing people who can walk up to a lost person lead them to Christ and bring them all the way to the point where they can begin to lead others to Christ and disciple them themselves. That's what we're trying to do. That's the target on the wall. That's success for us. And the good news is if you've been here from day one with me a year and a half ago, you know that I've been saying this from day one. I've been saying this from before day one as I talk with your search committee, as we prayed about this journey, we would go on together And I'm thrilled to stand before you today and to say I am more committed and more excited about making disciples here than I have ever been. I'm committed to this. I believe in what we're doing totally and completely. But I do want to take a moment and make sure we really understand what I'm talking about. So if you were here a year and a half ago, you know that I used kind of a little uh, illustration to help uh, drive home the idea of spiritual multiplication. And I'm going to do that again today. So I'm going to need two volunteers. And I know our preteens are going to be the first people to raise their hands. But I'm going to need two adult volunteers. We might get you guys in the game in a minute. But two adult volunteers. Scott Campbell, come on down. I need another. Let's get a female type. Can I have a female type? Haley, come on down. All right. Can we give these two sweet people a hand for volunteering this morning? No, 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 no. I mean a real hand. Can we really clap for them? That's much better. All right, all right. So just for a moment, this is Scott and this is Haley. We're going to just pretend that we rewind the clock, a little more for Scott, a little less for Haley, that they are freshmen in college, okay? We're rewinding the clock. They are freshmen in college. Where are they going to go to school? Anybody want to pick a school for them? All right, we got an A&M there, okay? <laughs> I, I think we're going to have to maybe look at another one. What, any, any particular school you're interested in going to as a freshman? Michigan. All right, all right, Michigan. Uh, uh, uh. All right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do a local favor. We're going to do TCU, okay? These two are freshmen at TCU. And uh, both of them come from good families. Both of them come from great churches that disciple them, that poured into them. But what I'm going to try to exhibit and to demonstrate is the difference between spiritual addition, which is what Scott's going to do, 
and spiritual multiplication, which is what Haley's going to do, okay? So they get to their freshman year of college, they move into their dorm, and right away they begin to develop relationships with people. They begin to share Christ with people. They begin to invite people to church. And each of them lead one person to Christ their freshman year. Each of you go grab one person from the audience. It can be anybody that you want to grab. Go. I knew the preteens and middle schoolers would get involved here. All right. Yes, all right. All right, great. Now, we reround the clock for them. We're going to fast forward the clock for these two, okay? So imagine that these are all freshmen in front of me, okay? And we've got Rebecca and Amber here, and they were both led to Christ by Haley and Scott. However, the difference between these two approaches is in the spiritual addition model. What happens in their freshman year is Scott brings, uh, it's Amber, right? Amber to church. She brings, he brings Amber to church. He gets her involved in a, a freshman girl small group. Uh, they all go to fall retreat together. They do all of these things, but that's basically where it ends. They baptize her, the church high fives her, celebrates it, and man, isn't this great that Scott's leading people to Christ. But the difference with the spiritual multiplication end is that while we do all these things with Rebecca, she's baptized, she's in a small group, she's going to follow retreat, she's in the worship service, Haley takes the time to pour her life into Rebecca. Haley does not just slap her on the back and say, great, we're so glad you're here. She shares her life with her. She pours her life into her. She shares her sin, her struggle. She teaches her how to read her Bible. She teaches her how to share her faith. She actually goes with her to do that as freshmen in their dorm. So fast forward, all of them go away for summer. They come back their sophomore year. And Scott, then again, the ever excited evangelist, goes and leads someone else to Christ. But, yeah, just wait, your hands can come up in a second. But differently, both Rebecca and Haley lead someone to Christ as well their sophomore year. So go. You two go lead someone. You stay here with me. Sorry. Okay. Uh, you both go find somebody right now. Did you pick somebody? Did you pick somebody, Rebecca? Okay, you got to pick somebody. All right, all right. Okay, our middle schoolers and our preteens are getting some love this morning. Let's pick a, yeah, okay, we got a student over here. Great, Fantastic. And you guys just, just you're going to need some space. Y'all scoot down a little bit. Okay. So again, Ricardo, here we come. Great. Fantastic. So again, what happens the sophomore year, Scott, the ever excited evangelist, leads this young man to Christ. He gets him involved in his church. He goes to a Sunday school class. He goes to a small group. He's baptized. The church high fives him, celebrates. But differently, each of the young ladies that these two led to Christ their sophomore year, They stay with them. They disciple them. They invest their life in them. They spend time really sharing their life with them so that, for example, these two young ladies that were just led to Christ, they know the sin struggle that Rebecca and Haley have. They know their fears. They know their problems. They know each other really, really well. They train them in actually how to read their Bible, how to share their faith, how to fight against their sin in their lives. And so as they finish their sophomore year and they go away for school, they come back now, you ready, for their junior year. We're now in their junior year at TCU. Scott, again, the ever excited evangelist, is looking for people to share Christ with. But differently, on this side, all four of these young ladies come back their junior year excited, passionate about leading people to Christ and discipling them. So let's see what happens. Scott, you go lead somebody to Christ. All four of you now go find somebody that you want to lead to the Lord.
Okay, we're getting real young over here. All right. Which is fine. Uh, they're right there. All right, y'all scoot down just a little bit more. Yep, there you go. Great. All right. All right. Yeah, of course. That's great. All right. Scott leads Mr. Josh to Christ. And again, it's fantastic. Scott is this on-fire evangelist, leads him to the Lord. He's excited. He gets him involved in a, in a junior small group. He's baptized. The church high-fives him. He's going to retreats. He even starts, Josh is so excited about Jesus, he even starts serving in the children's ministry at his church. He even gets involved and begins to give back. But differently on this end, and I won't keep up with all the names here, but all the young ladies that were led to the Lord, this is a very feminine side to the room, all of them, all of them, <laughs> all of them, wait, do we have a guy down there? Oh, we do have a guy down there. I didn't see you down there, buddy. I am so sorry. There's Isaac. Okay, Isaac's down there. Okay, sorry. I can't see all over the heads. Differently, all of these sweet people are discipled. They go to the small group. They plug into their church. Their church baptizes them, high-fives them. But each of these people are not dependent upon a pastor, not dependent on the college minister to disciple them. They actually have people within the life of the church that come alongside them and invest in them. But here's something else that happens. Junior year, do you remember Amber who became a Christian her freshman year? She quits coming to church. Why don't you go sit down real quick? I know, poor Amber. But here's the illustration that I'm trying to drive home. We didn't keep up with her. We shoved her in a class. We high-fived her. We baptized her. And in many ways, what happened her freshman year, we said that was success. But I can tell you that what just happened here, as much as we kind of awed about that because we felt bad for Amber, and I do feel bad for you, sorry. But the reality is that's what happens in our churches. A significant, significant percentage of the people we lead to Christ and baptize don't stick. They don't stay. They're not here two or three years after that. We can't find them. And I believe one of the reasons that that's the case is because we've not come alongside them. So somebody do the math. How are we doing on this side? How many people on this side? Eight? Did we count Isaac down there? Okay, good. Eight? How are we doing on this side? Three. Okay, let's do it one more time. They go away for the summer. They come back to their senior year at TCU. All eight of you lead somebody to the Lord. Scott, go at it again. Go. Okay. Did everybody grab somebody? Because the math's got to work out here for me. Okay, guys? Yep, okay, great. Eve, come on down. Yes, ma'am, come on down. Great, fantastic. Yes, great. We have another one. Great, fantastic. No, that's great. Giving us some wisdom and some depth here. That's fantastic. Okay, one more. Fantastic. So, senior year, Scott again leads somebody to the Lord. Baptized, high five get them involved in a life group, get them involved in the church. The college minister knows their name. College minister's wife knows who they are. But they just kind of, they're there. Nobody's helping, nobody's guiding them. Over here, all eight of these folks, because they've been trained, because they've been poured into, they're passing on something that really helps people stick. When spiritual multiplication in the life of a college freshman finishes the course, somebody give me the number. How many people do we have over here? 16. How many over here? 
Can you guys give these folks a round of applause for helping us this morning? Thank you all so much. Now, I do that because I really do want us to clearly, clearly understand what I believe Jesus is saying. Jesus is not calling us to spiritual addition, though I would be thrilled if some of you led somebody to the Lord. Jesus is calling us to a kind of investment that doesn't stop when we lead somebody to Christ. It's a kind of investment that recognizes once you lead somebody to Christ, your investment in them is actually just starting. So the time I have remaining, I'm going to show you three marks of a multiplying disciple from this passage. What does someone look like who's living on this side of our altar? Number one, you see in this passage, if we're going to be disciples who make disciples, we have to have a biblical faith. Multiplying disciples have, as it were, a biblical faith. Look in your Bibles at verse 16 through 18. It says, the 11 disciples traveled to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. Jesus came near and said to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. There are several kind of dimensions to who Jesus is in this passage that these three verses show us. The first is we see that Jesus is a betrayed savior. Did you notice the reference in verse 16 to the 11 disciples traveled to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had directed them? The 11 disciples is a reminder that Judas, one of the 12, had betrayed Jesus, killed himself, but that set of events had led to the cross, had led to the humiliating death and crucifixion of Jesus Christ. So whenever you read the 11 disciples, we're reminded that Jesus is a betrayed Savior. But secondly, this passage shows us that Jesus is a divine Savior. Did you notice verse 17? When they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. Now, to be clear, what that means is that while all the disciples were worshiping there, and it wasn't just the 11, there was a larger group there, but they were all worshiping, but there were some that were hesitant some that were a little unsure. But what's critical for us to recognize here is that Jesus, when these people start worshiping them, worshiping him, Jesus doesn't stop them. Jesus doesn't say, no, 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 don't, don't worship me. Get, get up off the ground. Don't worship me. I'm just, just a man. When people worship Jesus in the New Testament, he says, yes, it is right and it is good for you to do that. One of the reasons we believe Jesus is more than just a man, that he is fully God and fully man, is because he willingly accepts the worship of his followers. So I don't know if you remember in the book of Acts, Paul and one of his associates are at one point worshipped by some of the people he's trying to minister to. And the Bible says that Paul tears his clothes and says, stop, what are you doing? Fast forward to the book of Revelation, where John is interacting with this angelic messenger. And John is so overwhelmed at this angelic messenger's message that he begins to worship this angel. And the angel says, stop what you're doing. This is wrong. Don't worship me. And while Paul and this angelic messenger both stop people from worshiping them, Jesus doesn't do that here. 
Because he had already said earlier in the Gospels, before Abraham was, I am. But finally, we also see that he's an omnipotent or an all-powerful Savior in this passage. Did you notice verse 18? It says, Jesus came near and said to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now, it's critical to note that Jesus always had authority. During Jesus' earthly ministry, he healed people. He opened the eyes of the blind. He allowed deaf to hear. He even raised people from the dead. And while Jesus had authority during his earthly ministry, what the Bible here makes clear, along with the entire testimony of the scriptures, is that upon the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, he ascended to a new position of authority. When Jesus is standing here before the disciples, he's not standing here before the cross. Clearly understand that in Matthew 28, Jesus has already died and he has come back to life. And what God is saying here through the gospel writer Matthew, through the words of Jesus himself, is that Jesus, though he went through great humiliation, has now been exalted to a position of authority that's unparalleled in the universe. I don't know how many of you remember the story of Joseph from the Old Testament, but Joseph was one of 12 sons who, after a season of strife and controversy, was sold into slavery by his brothers. Through more hardship that Joseph faced, he ended up in jail, in prison. Had to be some moments that were difficult for Joseph sitting in jail, uh, remembering what his life was like. But if you know the story of Joseph, you know that God was not done with him. Through a series of events, God moved Joseph to second in command over the most powerful nation in the world at the time. He put him in charge, only second in command to Pharaoh. So that when his brothers, the same brothers who had sold him into slavery, come back to him and beg, them, beg Joseph to save their life, he's now in a position to do so. Joseph went through incredible humiliation but was later exalted by God, the second in command. What you see in Joseph's life is a parallel of what you're seeing in Jesus. Jesus goes through tremendous humiliation and suffering and pain and sorrow as he walks this earth and he dies on the cross. But as he rises again on the third day, he rises to say now, he is totally and completely the sovereign ruler of the universe. If you're reading through the Bible with us this year, you know that in Hebrews 1, last couple of days, we've read that Jesus, it says, sat down at the right hand of the Father. That's a phrase that emphasizes Jesus' authority, his finished work that he accomplished. It's also what Paul talked about in Philippians chapter 2, when he said, who, existing in the form of God, speaking of Jesus, did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
when Jesus says in verse 18, he has authority in heaven and earth. What he is emphasizing is that he is now in the position where every single person, past, present, and future, will bow their knee to King Jesus. This is why I skip down to verse 20 in the passage. He finishes with a similar kind of promise and declaration. Look at the end of verse 20. It says, And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus is calling his disciples to know that through the presence of his Holy Spirit, he would be with them. He would never leave them or forsake them. But what's implicitly given to us in this promise is a declaration that while Jesus is in the position of authority and power, while he's the sovereign ruler to whom every single person will bow their knee to, what verse 20 reminds us of is that he will always be in that position. See, contrary to Eastern philosophy and thought, time is not cyclical. You're not in this never-ending cycle of reincarnation, which is what Eastern religions teach. The Bible and Christianity teaches a very linear view of time. There's a beginning and there's an end. And what Jesus is saying here is, I began the world and I'm going to finish what I started How can we know that Jesus is going to be able to complete the task that was set before him? How do we know that while he's got authority and power now that someone won't unseat him? Well, we know that because the Bible tells us that Jesus will have this authority and power forever. Now, here's why that's so important for your life when it comes to making disciples. If we're going to make disciples of people who make disciples, we have to place our faith in the Jesus of the Bible, not the Jesus of our creation or of our culture. The Jesus of the Bible is the one we must trust if we're truly going to see disciples who make disciples emerge from our church. I'll never forget when I was a college pastor, uh, I had a student who was going to a very prominent school in our community at the time, who was called in by the president, by the lead administrator of the school, the university. This student of mine was in a leadership group on campus, and it had been discovered that he held to what the campus viewed at the time as traditional views on marriage and sexuality. And so this president actually called one of my students in his office to try to persuade him to convince him he was wrong about his beliefs. And so my student explained why he believed that marriage was between a man and a woman. He explained why he believed sex should be reserved for a husband and a wife in the covenant of marriage. And he explained that he was a Christian and that the reason he believed these things is because he believed the Bible taught these things. And the university president looked at my student and he said, well, well David, I'm glad that you believe those things, but, but my Jesus would never limit someone's love and who they love. My Jesus is a Jesus of tolerance who believes love is love and whoever you love, you should love. My Jesus would never impose archaic rituals and standards from a dusty old book on people in 2019. My Jesus is about love. And I was so thankful that we had discipled and trained this student because he had, even as a 21-year-old, the ability to look at this very seasoned university president and say, you know, you don't get to make Jesus be whoever you want him to be. 
You don't get to reshape and redefine Jesus however you want him to be. Jesus is who he is, and you can't change that. And so what happens in our culture, what's happening right now in our world, is the the last vestiges of Christianity that's being held onto and propped up in our secular culture is being done so by people redefining and reshaping who Jesus is. Parents, please understand that one of our great responsibilities is to help our children understand who Jesus really is. We don't get to redefine him, reshape him so that he's more, he's more appealing to our 2019 sensibilities, to what we think is right and wrong. The Bible, the word of God defines who Jesus is and that must stand. Amen. If we're going to see disciples produce disciples who make disciples who make disciples, we've got to have a faith, not in a Jesus of culture, but a Jesus of the word. I don't have time to do this, but I need to say this as well, okay? The only danger we face to this false view of Jesus is not just in our culture. I would say to you, there are erroneous views of Jesus even within the church. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. I have heard a number of people try to persuade kids or younger people to believe in Jesus, to become a Christian by asking this question, do you want to go to heaven when you die? Now, please hear me. I think heaven is an important part of our conversation. I think heaven is a real part of our hope. I think heaven is a really uh, key biblical concept that Jesus talked about, that the Bible speaks to. But understand this, we are not persuading people to go to heaven. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not, oh, don't you want to go to heaven? You don't want to go to that terrible, nasty, old hot place called hell. You want to go to a beautiful heaven, don't you? Well, we'll pray this prayer, fill out this card, sign this thing, then you can go to heaven when you die. Listen to me very carefully. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ starts with, you have a problem and your problem is sin. And your rebellion And your sin before God means you deserve his wrath and just punishment, which because of his love for you, he freely gave to Jesus, who died for you, who rose again. Yes, heaven is a byproduct of the gospel, but it is not the prime product. Here's my concern. If you make heaven the focus of the gospel, you give people a gospel that has nothing to do with how they live their life right now. If you want to be demystified as to why we've had so many people in our churches in the South pray a prayer or son a car when they were little, but then not walk with the Lord is because I think many times we presented a gospel to them that has nothing to do with how they live now. We're calling people to a life of following Jesus. No, your works do not save you. They don't save you. But a faith that saves you is a faith that changes you. The life that Jesus offers you is not gonna start just when you meet him at the pearly gates. The life and the fulfillment he offers you can start right now. So what we've gotta recognize is if we're going to see this kind of multiplication happen, yeah, we gotta steer clear of a redefinition of Christ in our culture, but we've also gotta steer clear of a lack of clarity of what the gospel is within our own ranks. 
So let me ask you this question. Are you trusting in the Jesus of your own creation or are you trusting in the Jesus of the Bible? Are you placing your faith and your trust and your reliance, not how you want Jesus to be or how you think he should be, but are you trusting Jesus as he says he is here, one who has all authority in heaven and on earth? Number two, and I got to hustle. Number two, multiplying disciples also have a public faith. They not only have a, uh, what did I say first? I forgot. A biblical faith, they have a public faith. Jesus said in verse uh, 19, to go and make disciples, as you'll notice here in your Bibles, of all nations. This is a shift in the nation of Israel's mindset about their mission. They were to move away from making disciples and hoping people come to them in Jerusalem. They were now meant to go out. Massive shift and how the nation of Israel, most of whom were the disciples, were of the nation of Israel at this first commissioning. It's, it's a shift in how they're thinking. But the public dimension to the gospel comes out not just in that they were to go out all over the world into all nations. Notice what he says next in verse 19. He says that the way that they're to make disciples is first by baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is saying that what we're to do is we lead somebody to Christ, help them understand their need for the gospel, help them understand their need for Jesus. They, they repent and trust Christ. And one of the very first things we're to do is to baptize them. Now, it's critical that we understand what that word actually means because at a very basic level, it means to dip or to immerse someone underwater. But in another sense, it means so much more than that. Baptism means at least two things if you're taking notes. First thing it means is you are declaring your faith. When you are walking into the waters of baptism, you are firstly declaring your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice this passage says that we're baptized in the name <coughs> of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is a beautiful uh, rendition of the Trinity we have in this passage. In fact, the Trinitarian nature of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is probably no place clearer taught than right here in Matthew 28, verse 19. And what we need to remember about the Trinity is it's not three gods, not three modes of God. It's three in one. It's a mystery. Three persons, one God. But what the Trinitarian nature of God does teach us is that God, before time ever began, when God existed eternally in himself, was completely happy, was completely joyful. There was a love between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that made them complete in every single way. God doesn't need you, and God doesn't need me. God wasn't lonely. He didn't make the world because he was looking for friends. God had everything he needed in himself. So why does he make us? Why does he make the world? Because he is sharing. He's inviting us to share in this beautiful Love within the Godhead. The reason you were made is not because of accidents or chance. It's because God is inviting you to share in this fellowship, this harmony, this beautiful love within the Godhead himself. So when you're baptized into the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, what you're saying is, I'm declaring to all of you, to everyone, that I am now a partaker. I am now a part of that love. 
you're declaring that you are in relationship with God. So when you're immersed, you're picturing the death that you've died with Jesus. When you're brought back up from the water, you're picturing the new life that you've been given and you're declaring through that symbol that you have placed your faith and trust in Christ. But there's the second thing that baptism does. Baptism also communicates your commitment to follow Christ. Baptism declares your commitment to follow Jesus. When you go public with your faith through baptism, you are communicating to everyone that you are committed to following Christ. We often talk about the wedding ring as a great illustration of baptism, and I think it is. Because this wedding ring is not my marriage. It's not my love for Shelly. It represents, it declares my love for her. Baptism declares that. But this wedding ring does more than that, right? Because what this wedding ring also provides is accountability. If you wear a wedding ring and you began to engage romantically with somebody that was not your spouse, that wedding ring serves as an indictment against that kind of behavior. Somebody walked over and saw you doing something inappropriate with somebody that wasn't your spouse and and you were wearing a wedding ring, they would say, hey, wait a minute, aren't you married to, to this person over here? Why are you engaging in this kind of behavior with this person over there? It's why social scientists say people will oftentimes, if they're being unfaithful to their spouse, will take off their wedding ring before they engage in that kind of behavior. Why would they take it off? Because to engage in unfaithful behavior to your spouse and still wear your wedding ring is an inconsistency that most people cannot endure. Can't live with it. What baptism then in a similar way is meant to be is it's a spiritual wedding ring. It's a spiritual ring we wear that says, if I were to ever live my life in a way that was inconsistent with my faith in Jesus, it stands to show me that I need to repent, need to turn from that. It's one of the reasons why baptism should not be done in your bathtub or your pool, unless your church is there. Baptism is something that should be reserved and to be done in a church setting. The reason that that's true is because what you're doing when you're getting baptized is you're putting on a ring and saying, I want all of you to hold me accountable that if I ever acted in a way that was inconsistent with the declaration I'm making today, that you would call me out. That's why when I've counseled children over the years, one of the questions I ask them when they want to get baptized with mom and dad present is I'll say, are you ready, Susie or Johnny? if you don't act like a Christian for your parents to call you out, to say something to you about not acting like a believer and have one little girl go, no, I don't want that. So we're just gonna wait for a while. We're gonna wait until you're ready to be held accountable to the commitment you're making. Parents, especially those of you that are counseling your children about coming to Christ and wanting to enter the waters of baptism, please understand me. We want, to, we want to baptize your children. We want to get them in those waters as quickly, as biblically, as we can be biblically faithful. But what I have seen through the years, moms and dads, is a lot more damage done when we run our children into the waters of baptism rather than waiting till they really understand the commitment that they've actually made. The point is this. If we're going to make disciples of people who make disciples, we need to pass on a faith that is public and clear. 
while your faith is very personal, it is not private. You have a personal faith, but you have a faith that is public. If we're going to make disciples of people who make disciples, we have to pass on a faith that we talk about, that we're open about, that we're willing to share with others. Thirdly and finally, multiplying disciples also have a transforming faith. Look in your Bibles at verse 20. The Bible says, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Jesus talks about teaching people. This is at a basic level training or instructing people in truth. But please take careful note that the teaching we're called to do is not just passing on information or knowledge. According to verse 20, we're to teach them to what? To observe or to obey everything Jesus commands. Said another way, our teaching has a trajectory to it. We're to teach people in such a way that they actually begin to live what we're teaching them. So Francis Chan has a really helpful analogy about this. He said, imagine telling one of your kids to go clean your room. And the kid walks away and goes to the room. A couple hours later, you see them and you say, hey, did you clean your room? And the kid says, well, no, I I didn't clean my room, but, but I read books about cleaning my room. You kind of look at them quizzically and say, okay, well, glad you read some books, glad you, but go clean your room. A couple hours later, come back. Did you clean your room? No, but, but I watched YouTube videos about cleaning my room. I watched somebody explain how to do it and it was really interesting. Go clean your room. Two hours later, come back. Did you clean your room? I didn't make it to it this time, but I got into a community of people where we talked about cleaning our room. We, we shared each other the struggle of cleaning our room, but we, but we never actually did it. Mom and Dad, eventually what you're going to look at your child and say is, quit watching videos, quit reading books, quit talking about it, just do it. And what you see in this passage is a similar kind of mentality. Jesus is saying, don't just talk about making disciples. Don't just talk about these spiritual things of sharing your faith and confessing your sin to each other and encouraging one another. Actually do it. The reason this is critical is I think one of the great challenges we've created in our church culture is we've created a culture, especially in the South, in the Bible Belt, we've created a culture that sees success as just listening to the truth. James talks about the deception of just listening. Be a hearer of the word, not just a hearer, but be a doer of the word. One of the things we've got to do if we're going to make disciples who make disciples is not just listen to what Jesus says, but to pass on our faith to others in such a way that they actually live it. One of the great questions that I've struggled with as your pastor, a year and a half on the job as your pastor here at First Baptist, is where in the life of this church are we encouraging people to teach in such a way that they actually live it? Where in a normal church setting are we actually doing this? Because here, while I'm teaching you and giving you some points of application, asking you questions, I'm not coming alongside you on Monday morning and saying, okay, how's that going? Can't do that with all of you. Our life groups, we get a little closer, right? Life groups are community around the word and we wanna encourage all of you to plug into a life group. That's what next week is about. Wear your jersey, wear your favorite team colors, whatever, but plug into a life group. 
But, but while we can get a little deeper into our lives, we can't really challenge each other in the way that I think Jesus is describing here. We've got serve where we're not just receiving the word, we're investing the word, we're giving it back. And while I think that's critical, I still can't see what you're doing on Monday afternoon. You know what I found? The only way, the only way you teach people to observe, to obey what Jesus has commanded is if in your life, you have two things, accountability and encouragement. The only way I believe we can actually come alongside people and help them live what Jesus actually told us to do is if we actually get close enough to each other where I can hold you accountable and you can hold me accountable and we can actually encourage and spur one another on to do the things that he's called us to do. So here's what you need to know. Right now, in our church family, right now, your staff is beginning to hold each other accountable to do what Jesus actually said to do. I don't believe I can ask you, as people of this church, to invest your life, to make disciples, to confess your sin, to share your faith, if your leaders aren't doing that. Call me crazy, but I don't think we can ask you to do something that we're not doing. So I want you to know that right now, at this very moment, we are raising the bar internally on how we challenge each other, how we hold each other accountable. I want you to know that our hope and our prayer is that that kind of relational kind of relating to each other, accountability with each other, will begin to make its way out into the congregation. But I want you to understand that what I'm suggesting What I will continue to insist upon is that we need a radical reorientation of how we see the church. We have to quit seeing the number of ministries we have, the number of baptisms we have, the number of attendance or giving we have as the primary marker of success. We've got to change how we look at that. I'm not saying those are unimportant. I'm not saying those aren't things we need to look at and be aware of, but ultimately we've got to remember that we have got to be a people who make disciples, produce disciples who are actually making disciples themselves. From day one, I've been saying that to you, and that's my prayer, is that we as a church would continue to live that, model that, and encourage that in our community and our world. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we thank you in Jesus' name that, God, you have not been unclear with us about...